Hey everybody, it's Brock Falk, and I want to thank you for listening to this message from Heritage Church of Christ. We would be thrilled to share more content like this with you and make it easy for you to share it with others. You can find more messages like this on our podcast, or you can download our smartphone app by searching for Heritage Church of Christ in your app store. But most importantly, I hope this message encourages you to take a next step toward a thriving relationship with Jesus. Enjoy. Child, the first thing that would have come to mind for me was a TV show that my parents used to watch called Miami Vice. And I don't know, I didn't know anything about what the show was about. I was, you know, six, seven, eight years old when this show was really popular. But I remember that when I would pass through the living room as my parents were watching this show and notice what was on the screen, I remember thinking that Don Johnson's wardrobe looked really cool. The pastels. And don't you think it's for the best that your preacher grew out of that fashion phase, right? I mean, can you imagine the deep v-neck up here, all of that? I don't know. But as I grew older, and as I began to become a little more helpful to my dad when he was working on some project or working on the cars there at the house, I began to become familiar with a different type of vice. I became familiar with the workshop vice, the bench vice, that was good for all sorts of tasks out in the garage. Anytime we needed to cut a piece of pipe or hold on to some kind of piece of material so that we could use a file on it or a grinder on it, the bench vice was always a very handy tool to be able to stabilize whatever piece of material it was that we were working on. You see, a vice is intended to keep things from moving, right? I mean, this is exactly what it exists for. No matter what kind of force you exert on it, you can bend stuff, you can hit it with a hammer, you can apply heat, whatever you need to do, but a vice is going to keep that material stationary in the same spot so that you can work on it. It's going to squeeze and it's going to pinch and it's going to compress hard enough that whatever is between the jaws of that vice is not going anywhere. And in the workshop, that's extremely helpful. In a workshop, that's extremely valuable. But when it comes to the spiritual life, a vice is a problem because it impedes movement. In the spiritual life, a vice hinders progress. And the spiritual life is all about movement. It's all about progress. The spiritual life is our response to Jesus's invitation to be followers. Because Jesus says to us, come and follow me, which implies that Jesus is going somewhere, right? And so when Jesus says, follow me, and you're stuck in a vice, you're like, well, that sounds good, but I can't go anywhere. I'm stuck in this vice. And that's the kind of image that I hope sticks with you in your brain as we wrap up this series of messages. As we've been talking about these glittering vices or these capital vices, I've mentioned a number of times that the list of seven has also throughout history sometimes been referred to as the list of the seven deadly sins. It's the same list, but seven deadly sins is sort of a misnomer. It's not the original title of the list. It's a misnomer because the items on this list are not actually specific individual actions 
that are going to cause you to lose your life instantly, okay? Even though that's what it, what it sounds like when you say seven deadly sins, even though that's what has been depicted in movies and articles and TV shows about the list of the seven deadly sins, what's a better way to think about it is to think in terms of capital vices, because these items are not specific individual actions. These, these items are habits of the heart. They're attitudes that grow. They're patterns of thinking and living and deciding. And over time, for hundreds and hundreds of years now, generations of Christians have realized that these habits have a stifling effect on your spiritual growth. They drain the spiritual life out of you. They ensnare you like a bench vice, right? They will trap you. They will hold you back from being able to move forward into God's design for your life. And so as we have talked about the problems of envy and sloth and wrath and vainglory and greed, we've called these things vices because they will try to grab onto you and not let you go. They will try to grab onto your heart and keep you from moving forward. And today we're doubling up. On purpose, we're talking about the last two vices in our list of seven, and we're talking about them together because these two vices happen to have a lot in common with one another. The vices that we're discussing today are the vices of gluttony and lust, which both have to do with the desires of the human body. But like the other vices on the list, you need to know right up front that there's a lot of misunderstanding out there about the problems that these two vices are describing. And just like has been the case with the other vices we've talked about, we, as we, as we figure out what these vices are referring to, we may be surprised at just how vulnerable each and every one of us is to falling into these pitfalls. And so we're going to talk today about what these two vices, gluttony and lust, are. We're going to talk about what they're not, and we're going to talk about what they have to do with the spiritual life anyway. You know, practically every Sunday of my life, with very few exceptions, I've sat in a church service and listened to a sermon someplace. But I can never remember a time in all of these decades, I can never remember a time when I've heard a sermon about gluttony. In fact, the only time that Jesus ever mentions gluttony, he's actually referring to himself. He talks about how some of his opponents have accused him of being a glutton and a drunkard. So that's the only teaching that Jesus offers about gluttony. The only time the word ever comes up elsewhere in the New Testament, it's Paul just talking about the reputation that people from a certain island have. The people of Crete are always drunkards, he says, and that's just the reputation that they have in their culture. But it's not a topic, it's not a word that comes up a lot in the New Testament. In fact, because of that, the perception that we have of what gluttony means is kind of nebulous. I mean, it's kind of like it's, it's not very specific. The common perception in our culture today is that gluttony simply refers to overeating. In fact, if you were to do a Google image search for the word gluttony, the results would show you image after image after image 
of excessively large people, exaggeratedly large people who were sitting with a huge mountain of food in front of them and their belts are popping loose and the buttons are falling off of their shirt. It looks like a caricature, but that's the perception that most of us immediately think about when we think about gluttony. In fact, there's a good chance that some of you heard me say just a minute ago that we're talking about gluttony today and you immediately assumed that we're going to talk about being overweight. And I need you to know right off the bat, I need you to know from the start that weight management is not what we're addressing with this vice. We live in a cultural climate that fixates so much on body image already that people who have a higher BMI often feel self-conscious. They often experience ridicule and body shaming, both from the outside world and when they look in the mirror. And I need to tell you that none of that has a place in the church and none of that is of Christ. That's not what we're talking about. Hear me say loud and clear this morning that being overweight, no matter how you determine that, being overweight is not a sin. And being a thin person is not a virtue either. And when we get that mixed up, when we thoughtlessly associate gluttony with obesity, we add spiritual injury to the cultural insults that overweight people may already feel. And we don't want to be a part of adding insult or injury, adding insult to injury. But when we get that confused, when we associate gluttony with obesity, we also make the mistake of implying that thinner people don't deal with gluttony, which is not the case. You see, like with all these other vices we've been talking about, gluttony is not a physical health condition. Gluttony is a spiritual health condition. Gluttony is about something that's happening in the heart. It's a habit that grows on the inside. Gluttony has to do with a person's relationship with food and the pleasure that comes from eating food. And it has to do with the inner desires, the inner needs, the inner hole that we're trying to fill with the experience of pleasure that we get from eating food. It's a disordered relationship with eating. And there are a lot of ways to have a disordered relationship with eating. Overeating can be one of the ways that gluttony expresses itself, but gluttony can also express itself through actions like pickiness about food. It can express itself through behaviors like selfishness about food, about trying to make sure that you get more than somebody else got or that you're hiding food that somebody else might want. It can express itself through snobbishness about food, as in, oh, I never eat that kind of thing. There are a lot of ways that a disordered relationship with food and eating can express itself, but gluttony is not primarily about how much we're eating. It's more about the place of importance in our hearts that eating holds. How important is this ritual to us? And without wisdom, without caution, the pleasure that we experience through consuming can become all-consuming to us. 
Now, I'm, I'm going to change lanes here for a second. I'm going to ask you to keep up with me because I'm also going to address the second vice that we're talking about today, which is the problem of lust. And unlike gluttony, I've heard quite a few sermons about this. In the decades that I've been participating in church, which is to say all of my life, I've heard a number of sermons about lust and sexual sin. In fact, it's been my experience that Christians, modern Christians, focus more attention and reserve more disdain for sexual sin than for a whole host of other more culturally acceptable sins that the Scripture seems to engage more frequently. But the truth is that the entire world is confused. The entire world is divided about how to manage sexual desire. We have all these debates. We have all these disagreements about what sex is for and when sex is appropriate and with whom. And we're bombarded, I mean, from every direction. We're bombarded with depictions and illusions and discussion and gossip about sex every which way we turn. Our culture's most popular music and movies and shows and books and podcasts and on and on, each one of these media resources seems to be saying something about sex and constructing a narrative about the role that sex plays in our lives. And in the midst of all of that, it might come as a surprise to you. You might be shocked to hear that Jesus and the writers of Scripture are, on the whole, very sex positive. From beginning to end, the Bible's authors consistently affirm the wholesomeness of sex. But Jesus and the authors of Scripture understand at the same time the, the momentous power that sex holds. They understand the gravity, the magnitude that makes sex so important to us, and they understand that that power gives sex the potential to cause catastrophic damage within our hearts and within our relationships with other people. One modern author has said that sex is a lot like nitroglycerin. You can use it to blow up a bridge or you can use it to heal a heart. It depends how you use it, right? And we all know that about sex. We all know this already because we have seen how sex has the potential to build a family and sex also has the potential to destroy a family, right? Like we know this from our own experience. And lust, lust is the tendency, the proclivity, the appetite to use sex for less than its intended purpose. Lust is all about reducing sex to just your individual pleasure and gratification. Lust is about downgrading the big comprehensive goodness of sex and just reducing it down, boiling it down to the lowest common denominator, specifically the physical aspects of sex. Now talking about these two things, gluttony and lust, I told you at the beginning that these two vices have a lot in common. And I want to tell you a little bit about what I mean because the way I see it, both of these vices are rooted in natural God-given appetites, natural God-given desires. 
God created us to need food, right? God created taste buds. God created us to appreciate flavor. There are times throughout the scripture when God sets aside a particular feast, a particular opportunity for his people to experience a moment of celebration together and to bring the richest of foods and the finest of wines so that they can, in fact, mark this moment as something worth remembering. And I got to tell you, it's not coincidental. It's not an accident that when Jesus sets up an opportunity for us on a regular basis to remember his love and remember his sacrifice for us, he does it with a meal. It's a little meal that we participate in together. We'll do it at the end of this service today. We call it the communion or the Lord's Supper. But Jesus intentionally used bread and wine so that the moment of remembering him would be something we would all look forward to participating in, something we could all connect with, something that would mean something to all of us. And it's also true, it's also true that God designed us for sex and for intimacy and that God made sex life-giving and pleasurable. And we should celebrate the gift of sex between a husband and a wife because it illustrates, metaphorically it illustrates the safe, accepting sacrificial relationship that God desires with us. But because both of these gifts, food and sex, are so appealing, so naturally desirous to us, we can easily find ourselves craving more than we need and craving forms that we don't need. We can find ourselves developing a disordered desire for pleasure where food and sex become the priorities of our lives and the focal points of our attention. And these two vices have so much in common, but I want to point out that out of all of the vices on the list, out of all seven of the vices we've talked about, these are the two vices that the rest of the world is consistently trying to push you toward, trying to push you into this pit. I mean, if you look around standing in the checkout line at the grocery or if you're standing at the register at the convenience store, just look around at your surroundings and you'll see you're surrounded by enticements to shallow pleasures, carnal pleasures, right? Right there next to the breath mints and the chapstick. You're going to see loads of food that have zero nutritional value and wouldn't ever claim to have any nutritional value. And it's sold in individual serving sizes. It's not meant to be shared with anybody else. It's intended for meaningless snacking. It's simply there for the pleasure of eating it. And right next to that, right next to the candy bars, right next to that you'll find the magazines and the tabloids that have pictures and articles specifically curated to arouse our imagination about what sex could possibly be, about what it would be like, about all of the ways that we could do it differently. There's all of these chances, all of these baits, all of these enticements asking you to lean that direction. And what's worse is that the production, the production of many of those foods and the production of many of those images and the products that they're selling, the production of many of those products is exploiting vulnerable people. And powerful people are buying vacation homes with the money they make off of our weakness in these areas. 
And so I want us to turn our attention because we have to ask ourselves, how, how do we push back against these two vices that are constantly leaning in our direction? Every which way we turn, whatever ads you see online, whatever pop-ups you see, whatever comes across your social media, whatever movies, whatever just commercials, even the conversations that are happening on the news, every single way you turn, there's going to be things that are drawing this, pushing this your direction. And we have to ask ourselves, how do a disciple of Jesus push back? How do we resist? And I want us to turn our attention together to the passage of Scripture that my friend Afo read for us just moments ago. Because in this passage, the Apostle Paul is pushing back against some of the cultural narratives that were present in his day, but they're still present today. And he was pushing back against some of the mental gymnastics that we perform to convince ourselves that gluttony and lust are not that big of a deal. And so if you want to look at this passage with us, you can find it by clicking the Bible button in the Heritage app or opening up your own Bible app. But this passage, you need to know, it comes in the context of a letter. In fact, it's part of a back and forth correspondence that was happening between Paul and a very young church, a, a, a brand new little church in the Greek city of Corinth. People who were young in their Christian faith. All right, And you need to know about that because you need to know that Paul is speaking, when he writes this, he's speaking into a particular context. There's a particular set of cultural questions and assumptions that he's addressing. He is responding to questions that the Corinthians have been asking him in a previous letter that we don't have a copy of. Okay, but we know that he's responding to one of their letters and he's responding to conversations that he's had with messengers from Corinth. And so in the very first few verses of this text, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning in verse 12, you're going to find these statements that are in, in our English Bible, they're written in quotation marks like this. Okay, you need to know the quotation marks didn't exist in the original Greek manuscripts, not because Paul forgot quotation marks, but because they weren't available to him. That wasn't how they wrote. And so scholars have worked together to piece together the entirety of the bigger argument that Paul is making and to understand all of the context of the conversation that's happening. Scholars have agreed these have to be quotes. This is how Paul is responding to some particular issues. And he begins with this quote in verse 12. The quote says, I have the right to do anything, you say. Which I got to say, I mean, this is 2,000 years old, but that sounds American, right? This is, this is a Greek statement. This is a statement by citizens of the ancient Roman Empire. But this sounds American. I have the right to do anything. And this, he may have been quoting a cultural assumption about freedom that Corinthian people in general held because they were citizens of the Roman Empire. Or it may be, it may be that Paul was quoting one of the particular Corinthian Christians who had mentioned this in a letter. Maybe somebody had been talking about, we have this freedom in Christ. We have the right to do whatever we want to do. We're not held back by the law. Paul quotes, he, he writes out this quote, I have the right to do anything. And they may be saying that because they're Romans. They may be saying that because they're Christians. But he responds to the idea and he says, maybe so, but not everything is beneficial. You may have the right to do everything, but not everything is wise. Parents get this, right? Like parents are like, okay, kid, like you may, have, you may be old enough to do this certain thing, but that doesn't mean it's a good idea, right? 
And then, and then Paul, he actually repeats the same quote. He says, I have the right to do anything, some may say, but then he responds with, but I will not be mastered by anything. And then he recites this third quote. You say, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. Now, I, we don't know the source of that quote. May have been a, a common assumption in Corinthian culture, may have been something that had come up in their conversation. But what it means is, eat, eat whatever you want. Eat however you want. Because food was made to be eaten. That's what it's here for. And the stomach, I mean, the only purpose we have for this stomach is to be filled. And so, I mean, it's all going away anyway. You know, we only need it for a while. So go ahead and just do what you want. Eat, drink, be merry, do your thing. You know, like that's the gist of what this quote is about. And as you look at all of those quotes together, I have the right to do anything food for the stomach, the stomach for food. As you look at these quotes together, the theme that's underneath all of those is that a person should feel free to do whatever comes naturally. A person should be free to engage or to satisfy the, the appetites that their body naturally has. And there were some assumptions that were prevalent in the Corinthian church, maybe because they were young in the faith, maybe because of their culture. But the assumptions said, Natural appetites are exactly that. They're natural. They're normal. They're not meant to be questioned or denied. You can fill those appetites. But Paul's pushing back. Paul's pushing back here on the assumptions because over time walking with God, Paul has learned that our bodies and our appetites have deeper meaning than that. Paul knows that our bodies and what we do with our bodies has spiritual significance. In fact, he says so in the next sentence. He says, the body, however, was not meant, it's not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body, which is a profound statement because what he's telling you is there are some things in this world, some things in this life, some things in your culture that you were not intended to engage. There are some things sexually, physically that you're not intended to engage, but there is a greater purpose for your body. He says your body was intended for the service of God. Your body was intended for the Lord. And he also says that the Lord is the one who equips and prepares and assigns and empowers your body to do the things you were designed to do. In fact, this, this next statement is a huge theological concept, but in verse 14, he says, by God's power, by his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, which everybody in that church agreed with. They were Christians. They believed in the resurrection of Jesus. Okay. But then he says, and God will raise us also, which is where Paul is explaining something huge. He's saying that our bodies are not just temporary containers, just holding on to our souls until the soul doesn't need the body anymore. He's saying our bodies are not temporary containers that are just meant to be fed and fueled until we no longer require their service. He's explaining a bigger theological function that God designed our bodies for his purposes so that we could achieve and accomplish what God has prepared for us to do and that our bodies are more permanent than we realize. 
He says our bodies are going to experience resurrection the way that Jesus did. You remember the stories about Jesus' resurrection? He shows up and he was hungry. He ate food. He cooked breakfast over a campfire. He showed up and people were like, is that really you? And he said, come feel the holes in my hands. He had a physical body. And Paul says, God raised Jesus from the dead and he's going to raise us too like that. He wants all the Corinthian Christians and all Christians in general to know that what we do with our bodies has eternal and spiritual significance. He's trying to help us see the way that our souls and our appetites are connected. They're intertwined. Our spiritual life and our physical life are not separate matters. They're not disconnected from one another. Our physical life is where our spiritual life gets put into practice. Our physical life is where we embody the convictions that we have in our spiritual life. And he's going to get more specific about that in the next couple of verses, particularly with regard to sexual expression. You read on in verse 15. He says, don't you know, don't you realize that your bodies are members of Christ himself, which we've talked about in the past in some other sermons about the metaphor, the idea that if we're all part of the body of Christ, it's like somebody is a finger and somebody is a nose and somebody's a spleen and somebody's an appendix and all that kind of stuff. But we're connected. We're interdependent. We rely on each other. We need one another. This is the metaphor he's going with here. He says, don't you know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? So shall I take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? He says, never. He says, we should never do that. And then verse 16, he says, don't you realize, don't you know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one spirit. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Now that, that's, that's a deep sentence. That's a deep couple of verses. But the thing that makes, the thing Paul is pointing out here is the thing that makes lust so destructive to us. What Paul is saying here is something that most of us have already come to know on our own, that sex is not just a physical act, is it? That sex is a spiritual event. And it has mental and emotional connection that goes along with the physical connection. Paul is saying God designed sex for the sake of sacrificially giving yourself to somebody else with commitment and love, covenant. That it's not just for the sake of getting something from someone else. And so Paul is trying to remind us, trying to point out that you cannot possibly engage in sexual activity. You can't engage in sexual thinking about somebody else without giving away part of yourself. That's just how sex works. And Paul says this matters. This matters to your creator. This matters to God. And so Paul's encouragement is keep your sexual expression inside the bounds of the morality that God has given to us. In fact, he goes on and he gets real, real specific about this. He says in verse 18, he says, flee from sexual immorality. Run in the opposite direction. 
Run away from the enticements, from the bait. Run away from the temptations to be engaged in immoral sexual behavior. He says, all other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. And then he says, don't you know? Don't you realize that your body, your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit? A temple is a place where the divine being dwells, right? He says the Holy Spirit dwells inside of all of the places that the Holy Spirit could choose to live. The Holy Spirit lives inside you. He says your body's a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you received from God. You are not your own, which is a big statement. And we, and we have to reckon with this. We have to wrestle with this. But he says, you don't belong to yourself. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Now, this, this is a hard text. This, this whole passage is challenging. I, I warned all the parents of young children that I could find in the audience this morning. Like, hey, there's, there's going to be some hard conversation that you may have if your kids listen to this topic today. You may want to take them to children's ministry. This is not one of those passages that we read on Family Worship Sunday, right? This is a hard text. But I need to stop right here and I need to recognize and point out that reading this text together has the potential to prompt in us a sense of shame. It has the potential, even though, even though this text is primarily about sexuality and the vice of lust, this, this underlying message of this text is all about how we use our bodies. In fact, this text is about the bigger spiritual value and significance of our bodies, and some of us are not proud of the way that we've treated our bodies, right? Some of us are not proud of some of the ways that we've used our bodies in the past. But as, that, as any of that feeling wells up in you, whether it's disappointment, shame, whatever that is, as that wells up inside of you, I need to tell you very clearly that shame is not one of the tools that God uses to change our hearts. That is not how God works. Shame is not one of the tools that God uses to change our hearts because shame makes us feel inadequate for what God has planned for us. Shame makes us feel inadequate for the life that God has designed, that God has in store. Shame tells us that even God's power is not enough to clean up the mess that we've made. Shame tells us that it's a lost cause. Shame tells us that we've messed up too badly. Shame tells us that there's no use in even trying to be different. Shame is not one of the tools that God uses to change our hearts because in God's plan, in God's economy, there is always hope for redemption. And as we wrap up our message this morning, as we begin to draw to a close, I want to point out to you that God does not work in our lives simply by pointing out our failures and our shortcomings. Because God is a God who doesn't use shame, God does not operate in a way that simply points out, criticizes, calls out our failures and our shortcomings. In fact, John chapter 3, verse 17, Jesus himself said, this is in red letters in your Bible. Jesus said, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. Can you believe that? God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save 
the world through him. And this is huge because every other expression, every other expression of humanity's attempt to try to connect with whatever's out there in the spiritual world, every other religious expression has been based in the assumption that we've made the gods or the God angry, right? Every other religious expression in human history has been based on the idea that we've got to do something to appease whoever's out there, to make them be less angry with us, to push against the condemnation. And Jesus comes and says, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. God sent his son into the world to save the world, which means that when we find ourselves stuck in a vice, when we find ourselves having fallen in a pit and God sees us down in the pit, God does not stand far off, doesn't stand at a distance and say, you messed up, you're terrible, what a pitiful loser. God does not say those things. God comes closer. God draws nearer. And in the midst of our mess, in the midst of our ugly failures, God comes and joins us to show us the way out, which means that God is not in the condemnation business. God is in the salvation business. And some of y'all are asleep because that's the gospel right there. God is not in the condemnation business. God is in the salvation business. This is who God is. God's purpose for you and for me is not destructive. God's purpose is redemptive. And so when God calls out sin in our lives, when God points towards our shortcomings, God is not doing that to put distance between us. God is doing that to show us which way to go towards righteousness. God is saying, get out of that pit. Come here, let me help you. Let's go follow me in the right direction. And God is always doing that for our good. And so when it comes to the way that we interact with our food, when it comes to the way that we engage with sex, God is calling us to consider how our physical appetites, the natural appetites of our bodies, have the potential to either draw us closer to God as the provider, the selfless giver, the, hospitality, the, the hospitable Lord that he is. Those appetites have the potential to draw us toward God or to pull us away from God from the abundant life that God designed for us. And so as we wrestle with what's the place that gluttony has in my heart, what's the place that lust has in my heart, there's a lot of different steps that we can take. There are spiritual disciplines that we can practice to train ourselves into a better way of living. We can practice the disciplines of chastity and temperance. We can practice the disciplines of abstinence. We can practice the disciplines of accountability and community. We can practice the disciplines of fasting from all sorts of things that are unhealthy for us. But the very first place that it starts the very first thing that has to happen before any of the rest of that helps is we have to say, God, I'm in a mess and I need your help. We have to recognize that God, who is not in the condemnation business, but in the salvation business, we have to recognize that God is offering a salvation that we ourselves need. And we have to receive it and we have to accept it.